Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. What a joy and a privilege it is to be with all of you this morning. Uh, Music team, thank you so much for leading us in musical worship. It is truly a blessing to do so. Uh, Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Psalms. And specifically, the 50th Psalm, Psalm 50. Then if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. A Psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God, Yahweh, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not be silent. Fire devours before him and a storm whirls around him. He calls the heavens above and the earth to render justice to his people. Gather my holy ones to me, those who have cut a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, no male goat out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine as well as its fullness. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of distress. I shall rescue you. You will glorify me. But to the wicked, God says... What right have you to recount my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and you harness your tongue for deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces. There will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me. He who orders his way, I shall show the salvation of God. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful again for the privilege to come together and to be instructed by your holy and inspired, infallible, inerrant word this morning. We submit ourselves to it. We submit ourselves to you fully, completely, and ask you by your grace to change us through this text. Be glorified by our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. You can be seated. 
there are any in here who have ever read John Bunyan's famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress, you'll be familiar with two characters named Formalists and Hypocrisy. And if there are any here who have not read uh, Bunyan's famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress, I'd recommend the moment you leave this place that you obtain a copy or download the audio version of it. It's basically the story of a man named Christian and his travels through the world that is not his home. In fact, the place he is traveling to, the celestial city, this is his home. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of heaven. And this traveler has been put on and set on a path by the king himself, a narrow path after going through a narrow gate. But, but along the way, he's met with various obstacles and many opponents of the king, many challenges to his faith. Uh, you have despondency in a swampy lake. You have despair in a giant's castle. Temptations are abounding, attractive, enticing, luring temptations to take easier ways, any other way than that path the king placed him on, paths of legalism, paths of pride and worldliness, laziness, vanity. Temptations which any pilgrim, any true Christian in this world can say they've faced to some degree or another in their journey on the narrow path to the celestial city, including temptations from other people in this world who are attempting to come into the kingdom and onto the path through another way. Not by the narrow gate, which represents salvation for sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, but by any other means. Enter formalist and hypocrisy, tumbling over this wall and onto the path, where Christian asks them, where have you come from? Where are you going? And to paraphrase, they say, we're from the land of vainglory. We're going to the celestial city, celestial city for a reward, just like you are. And Christian says, well, why didn't you enter in through the gate, which stands at the beginning of the way? And they said, no, 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 that gate is too far away for us. It's too far away for the people of our town. Our people, we have a custom to take this shortcut and climb over the wall. And Christian says, but that's not what the king said. You're, you're violating his revealed will. He told you in his word there is only one way, through his gate, on his path, his way, to which they said, don't worry about us, because our people have a tradition of taking a shortcut. We've been doing it for over a thousand years. But Christian says, will your practice stand at a trial at law, or stand a trial at law? And they told him, yeah. We're sure it will. Uh, it will be admitted as legal by any impartial judge. And besides, they says, if we get into the way, what does it matter how we got there? If we are in, we are in. You are on your way to the celestial city. You came in at the gate, and we are in the same way. We came tumbling over the wall. And they asked, so how is our condition any better than yours? How is our condition any better than than, than yours? Well, Psalm 50 answers that question here, and it does so decisively. It does so absolutely, and it does so irrefutably. In fact, as we go through this text this morning, you'll begin to see where Bunyan got his inspiration for the inclusion of these two men, formalist and hypocrisy. So let's dive right in here, okay? The first thing we see is that this is a psalm of Asaph. Now, the original Asaph was not only a 
prophet and the author of several psalms throughout the Psalter, but he was also David's director of sanctuary music, which could mean this was a, set to a tune for sanctuary worship, but we're not told that specifically here. What we are told, and what should make all of our ears perk up this morning, is what Asaph writes in verse 1, that the Mighty One, God, Yahweh, has spoken. And that's what you're all here for, right? That's what you're all doing here this morning, to, to hear a word from the Lord. That should be your motivation for being here this morning. We take our worship very seriously here, uh, from the music to the prayers to the Bible reading to the preaching to the fellowship. The elders at Lakewood take it very seriously because we believe that when folks come in those doors, when they come through those doors, they're expecting to hear a word, not a word from Matt Bowen, Uh, Not a word from the preacher, not a word from the music leader, but from the Lord himself. We have a a high view of God. We have a high view of his word. And so it's our desire to present the word of God faithfully and accurately and then respond to the word in like manner with high regard, with high esteem, with reverential awe and worship, knowing that Yahweh himself, the great I am, is actually speaking to us, his creatures, through his divinely inspired holy scriptures here. And texts like this, they make it really easy to communicate this reality here. He says right here in verse 1, he has spoken. In other words, you better pay attention now. These aren't man's words. These are the words of the Lord Most High. Asaph even doubles down. He triples down. He says, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, has spoken. El, Elohim, Yehovah, the highest authority in all of creation, the self-existent supreme ruler over all on earth, below the earth, and above the earth, has spoken. The one who, Asaph says in verse 2, called the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. This one who spoke the very universe into existence by the word of his power, who reigns supreme from the east to the west, from the beginning to the end, the one who gave you and everyone else you have known, you have ever known, the opportunity to live and breathe on this earth has spoken. Now, will you listen? Will you hear His word, that's the question. Out of Zion, the perfection of his beauty, he says in verse 2, God has shown forth Zion, the mountain which he chose to seat his temple upon, his sanctuary upon, his holy temple, which if you go back and read of its construction, had to be crafted exactly to his specifications for this would be the place where the Ark of the Covenant would be housed, a symbol of his presence Certainly the temple or the sanctuary or the ark did not contain him, but it was the location where he he chose to commune with his people. So it was beautiful. It was uh, adorned with beauty because of who it represented, our beautiful Lord, whom Asaph invites eagerly, fervently, enthusiastically to speak in verse 3, saying, May our God come and not be silent, Fire devours before him, and a storm whirls around him. Literal fire. Literal storms surround him in an awesome revelation and manifestation of himself. This is very similar terminology that we see back in Exodus 19, where 
he revealed himself on another mountain, right? Mount Sinai, where it says, Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Now here we are told that he speaks from Mount Zion with the same awesome display of majesty and power. We're not told exactly when this takes place, but we are told the reason for this theophany, for this uh, appearing of God to man. It's a summoning to trial. He's summoning people to trial. In fact, we'll see at the end of verse 6 that God himself is presiding over the whole session here. For God himself is judge says Asaph. And notice how the divine judge begins the proceedings by calling his first and second witnesses in verse 4. Who are they? Well, he calls the heavens above. And he calls the earth to render justice to his people. Gather my holy ones to me, those who have cut a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness. That's their testimony. They're saying, he is righteous. Heaven is his witness along with the earth to confirm that any charges that he's about to bring are sure. They're true. They're right. He did the same thing back in Deuteronomy 32, by the way. He said, give ear, O heavens, let me speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. He's calling witnesses. Isaiah said right from the first word of his prophecy, hear, O heavens, Give ear, O earth, for Yahweh speaks. And again, what are they witness to? They're witness to the truth, the trustworthiness, the just nature of his divine word. For God himself is judge. Selah. Pause and meditate. So are you ready to hear his words? A lot of people in the church today, even in our churches, they won't like this next section, section at first glance here. Some folks have left churches over passages like this. It's pretty touchy stuff. It's not really great text for massaging the ego. Are you ready for this? Okay, verse 7.2 in your outline. This is Yahweh speaking. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. He says, hear, listen. Behold, pay attention now, focus, concentrate now on my word. And who's supposed to pay attention here? My people. His people. Not everyone is called to hear the words of verse 7. This is not for everyone. It's only for a specific group of people, for God's people. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. Then he reemphasizes his target audience here. Oh, Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Meaning his covenant people are on the stand. Those whom he has called, those whom he loves, the faithful, the believers, the saints of old. Now, if there's one thing we know about God, it's that he never changes, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he will, he will be the same forevermore, right? Which means the faithful of today, believers today, better hear and concentrate on what he has to say as well. But context is king, okay? 
Historical context is everything in Bible interpretation. You ever heard that real estate term, location, location, location? Well, I would tell you that context, 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 especially in the church today, is significantly more important in your life. And if you're not in a church that preaches verses like this in context, then you should find a new church location, location, location. (laughs) Historical context is taking a text like ours in its original setting, which which means we can't just make Israel the church somehow magically or spiritualize it, and now all of a sudden this is the church. It's just not, it doesn't work that way. Now again, as we've said before, we can take the principle of what's being taught here and apply it to our lives in the church today, which we will, but remember, this is originally to God's chosen people, ethnic Israelites, and the true Israel within Israel, his people, his chosen covenant people, through whom we are blessed, but this is to them first, okay? To his people, he says, hear me. Pay attention to the divine judge of the heaven and the earth, of the heavens and the earth. With heaven and earth as my witness, I testify against you. Well, what are the charges? Answer, their disingenuous worship of him. But he wants to make something clear right from the get-go, and this is where context is key. Okay, look at verse 8. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. The issue here is not the sacrificial system. Okay, how could it be? I instituted it. I'm the one who laid it out for you. I, I gave it all to you. It's not the sacrifices. You're following all the details to a T. You're doing great. You're doing perfect. But you're missing the most important part. I didn't create the, the system and the slaughter of animals for the sake of slaughtering animals. I did it for a much more meaningful and significant reason, and you are missing it. That's what he's saying. In fact, he says in verse 9, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your fold. Why? For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. In other words, Israel, my people, when you bring a sacrifice, do you actually think you're somehow offering something to me? Like something that wasn't already mine? Like I'm somehow profiting off this transaction here? You think that? These animals were mine to begin with, he says. Bulls, goats, birds, every one of them, even the ones you keep and you don't sacrifice to me, they're mine. It's it's like when your kid buys you a tie or something for Father's Day, but he he uses your money to buy it for you. (laughs) But, But then this is amplified to an infinitely greater degree here. He's the one who created the larvae, who birthed the worm to spin the silk which was then harvested by, woven into some hideous pattern by, and sold by a people who he also created and owns, only to be bought by this precious little child with his dad's money, who then has the audacity to say, see what a good kid I am? I did what everyone else did. I bought you this tie on Father's Day. Now, what do I get? 
That's what's going on here. And this was absolutely true, by the way. The, the Israelites, they were notorious for elevating the formalities and the motions of the ritualistic ceremonies to the place of greatest importance, even to the point where they thought that they were somehow doing the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth a big favor by bringing him their animals. Saying, look what I'm doing for you, Lord. I, I'm worshiping you here. I, I'm bringing you, maybe, the best animal of my flock here, the best goat. Look at him. Look, look how I've raised this thing. There's not a spot on it. I've fed it. I've nurtured it. I've cared for it. And I've raised it blemish-free. And now, O oh Lord, I graciously offer this sacrifice to you. Oh, what a sacrifice it is. You're welcome, O oh great king. And God says, that goat is mine. That goat is a goat because I made it a goat. I made his goat parents and his goat grandparents too. In fact, I, I made the first goat. And I killed the first goat. And a long line of goats after him. In fact, I killed everyone at one point. And I killed everything except for one righteous man and his family along with some animals I wanted to see continued on. And guess who was on that boat? His great, 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 great grandpa goat. <laughs> and now you're telling me that because you took a knife and slit that goat's throat and sprinkled some of his blood on my altar that I should somehow be in your debt? You did this for me? <laughs> he says, let's get this straight right now. I need nothing from you, including your worship. I, he says, I let you worship me. If it weren't for me, you'd be bowing down to little carved statues cut from my tree in my forest, which produce the same wood you and your family use to keep yourself warm at night. You think this is about dead goats and bulls? Like, I need another dead goat. He says, I need nothing. Brothers and sisters, Yahweh needs nothing. I've heard it said that God created man because God was lonely. He needed company. That's blasphemy. He has always existed lacking nothing. He still exists in perfect harmony, perfect unity, and with absolute contentment in the God Godhead. Sinful men and women, we're the ones who change constantly and constantly have need, but he remains the same. The triune God does not need us. In fact, uh, he even says in verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine as well as its fullness. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? He's like, you're treating me like one of these pagan deities here. I'm like I'm somehow dependent on the sacrifices of my worshipers to determine what kind of mood I'll be in that day. That somehow my thirst for blood, my lust for blood will be satiated or satisfied by your offering of animals or even your children as Israel had been known to sacrifice to pagan gods at one point. 
You think I'm like the pagan deities, he says? You think I get hungry? You think I get thirsty? You think I have need for anything that comes from your hands, including your tainted worship? Oh, you prideful, pitiable little man. If that's your attitude, don't waste your time. And for Pete's sake, don't kill that goat. Let him live. I said the same thing in Isaiah 1. Again, after summoning the heavens and the earth as his witnesses, he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle and the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. I take no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Look, he says it right here. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocation. I cannot endure wickedness in the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon festivals, your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my face, my eyes from you. Indeed, I will... even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why not? Your hands are full of blood. The message to the people of God, this divine judge with heaven and earth as his witnesses, I don't need your worship and I don't need you. That's pretty harsh, right? That's not easy to hear. Well, if that human pride begins to well up anyhow, you know, Israel could have rightly said, what are we supposed to do here, God? This is what you told us to do. You said go through these rituals, practice these customs. You told us that. And he he would have said... And he did say right here in Psalm 50, it's not your ritualistic sacrifices that I'm after. I don't need you to just go through the formalistic motions and pretend you're doing me some big favor here, acting as if the formalities themselves are what make you my people. I don't want your external mechanical works and false piety. I don't see as man sees. Man looks on the outside, but what does God look upon? What does he want from his people? Their heart. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering, David says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you do not despise. He wants their heart. He wants your heart and my heart. He wants us. Verse 14, offer to God sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's the heart. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of distress. I shall rescue you. (laughs) You will glorify me. He doesn't need the goat. Yahweh wanted them to understand the reasoning 
behind the goat. He wanted them to understand what the goat symbolized, what the goat represented. The fact that he had rescued them, that he rescued them by his sovereign grace alone and even gave them a method for uh, temporarily atoning for their sin, their repeated sinning against him. Until the day when his promise of the final and ultimate sacrifice would be laid upon the altar, his sacrifice for his people. These were his people, and he was their God, and they had lost sight of that. They thought that if, if they just worshipped him in their tradition and formalism, that, that he was somehow impressed, and that that would become the means by which they were pleasing to him and made righteous in his sight. But he says, oh, no, 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 my people, you have missed it. Learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. See, I want your heart. I want your sincere love and adoration, not your cold, dead religious routine. I'm not impressed by it. In fact, it, it's a burden to me. And I love this in verses 14 and 15. I love it. This is, this is how you know that he's speaking to his people, true believers. Verses Verses 9 through 13, they're a rebuke, no doubt. Okay, we can't get around that. It's a correction. It's a judgment. It's discipline. But Peter says this is necessary, for judgment begins where? In the household of God, he says. But God's judgment on a believer is vastly, exponentially different from the judgment of God on an unbeliever. And this is what so many professing believers today just don't understand. And, and in many ways, I can sympathize. His, his discipline, his correction of us, especially in the moment. But you must understand, when God judges Israel here, it's a display of his grace. Okay? He says, you're not doing it right. You're, you're blowing it here. I see your heart. I know what's going on in there. I know your motivations. It's not good. It's not good. What you're doing, turn from it turn from it. I'll even show you how. Let me show you how. Turn from your wicked ways. Call upon me. Offer sincere thanksgiving for what's been done for you. I will rescue you, he says. And who will he rescue them from? Himself. I will rescue you. You will glorify me. That's mercy. That's grace. Read the first part of Hebrews 12. Uh, one, one part says all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful of course <laughs> but to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness okay so the principles then what can we possibly glean from this judgment of God on his people Israel I think there are two main takeaways from this section of scripture okay number one he doesn't need our worship, okay? What we do here every Sunday morning, uh, you know, the worship we offer to him, the singing, the reading, the preaching, all the stuff we mentioned earlier, he doesn't need these things from us. He, he has given us the ability to carry them out, and we are simply responding in kind. Even the, ordinance of the ordinances of the church, think about it, okay? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, baptism, well, this is just an outward declaration of an inward transformation, a transformation that he brought about within us fully, even giving us the faith that is required to be justified in his sight. He gives us the faith. 
justification which came through the giving of his son. The, the fulfillment of the promise that we talked about earlier, his perfect son who gave his body and spilled his precious blood as the final sacrifice to atone for the sins of all who would believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. And, and we remember the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ through the bread and the cup, right? His, his coming again. We, we are declaring the, the death of the Lord. He's coming again. We, we partake in this together in response to and, and in worship of him. But these things don't save us. We're not doing God some big favor by partaking in him. Good night. He gave, he gave everything. We gave him nothing. We give nothing. Nothing in our hands we bring Simply to the cross we cling. And guess what? He took our fingers and wrapped them around it. Okay? He, he, but, but he allows us to partake. He has given us the ability to do what we're doing here today as a gift. This is a gift from the Lord. So, so may we not think that our rituals, especially in such a highly traditionalistic church like ours, somehow... Um, May we not think that they're somehow garnering favor or impressing God somehow. He, he needs nothing. He, he doesn't need us. But the good news is, he wants us. He wants you. He wants me. He, he wants us, and, and he invites us, even today, to come to him. Come to him. Number two, he's inviting us right now to come to him with a right heart. Again, he wants your heart, not your religiosity. And, and when you respond, when you ask him to change your heart, even as a believer, when you ask him to conform your heart to love what he loves and hate what he hates, he will do it. He will do it. When God does a work in our hearts, he convicts us of our falling short of his glory. He convicts us of our sin, and this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. Conviction is not a, a bad thing. When he convicts us of our, our falling short, it's a good thing. When we feel the full weight of our sin, that's a great thing. Run toward conviction. Don't try to run away from conviction, like the psychiatrists and psychologists will tell you. Oh, shed your guilt. Well, no, no. Go toward it. Run toward it. Why? Why are you convicted? What are you doing? Go to the Word. When we mourn over our sin, when He gives us the ability to, to recognize sin for what it really is, and we can then mourn over it, this is a mercy of the Lord. This is a mercy from God. When, when He tells us, repent of your sin, some people, ooh, they hate that word. Oh, my gosh. When, when, when He says, repent of your sin, Turn from your sin, a complete 180, change of mind, change of heart, turn, a new creation in Christ. This isn't that the oppression that the world or nominal cultural Christianity would fool you into thinking it is. This is divine mercy of the one who knows best. And it's being extended to you, saying, listen, you've wandered. You've wandered off the path. You're on the path that leads to destruction. You're no longer on the way. You're going to get disciplined. 
You're not going to get destroyed. You're not going to be damned forever. You're mine. You belong to me, but you will be disciplined. But turn back. I will put you back on the way, and I will continue to live you, uh, lead you in life everlasting. And that's what he's saying. Repentance is a gift. It's not an oppression. Uh, this is what Paul tells Timothy. He says, God gives repentance, which leads to the full knowledge of the truth. Repentance allows us, through the power of his spirit, he, he allows us to, to grasp as much as we're able the divine depths and heights and vastness of his loving kindness. So ask him to give you a heart full of sincere reverence and sincere worship. In the end, verse 15 states, it's all for his glory. All of it. He gets all the glory. That's just how it should be. And that's beautiful. So that's the judgment on the formalist here. Now, unlike Bunyan's versions, the, those partaking in the formalism of Psalm 50 were actually God's chosen people. Uh, but God's people still need to be aware it's a, because it's a trap that we can all fall into. Any true pilgrim, we can all get into traditionalism, religiosity. But this next group of people, the next defendants, the next one to take the stand in point three, these hypocrites, as you will see, these are unregenerate men and women just playing the part. He makes this perfectly clear in verse 16. He says, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recount my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Now, we see this distinction right from the get-go, right from the first chapter, first words of the Psalter. Only two kinds of people in this world, not black, white, rich, poor, fat, skinny, old, young, gay, straight, pretty, or ugly. No, there are only two kinds of people in this world when it's all said and done, the righteous and the wicked, the faithful and the faithless, believers and unbelievers. That's it. Now, there are unbelievers, wicked men and women, who try to pretend they're believers. They try to pretend like they're among the people of God, but they're liars, and they're phonies, and they're counterfeits, and fakes. They're hypocrites. They may be able to fool all of us who look on the outward appearance, but they do not fool the one who knows the heart, and they will be held accountable in the fires of hell forever and ever. He knows their heart, so they can't fool him. Look what he says of them in verse 17. He says, For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. See the difference there? They don't view God's discipline as mercy. They view it as a burden. That's why they tend to take only some of God's word, only their favorite parts of God's word, the parts which are in line with their preferences or even agendas, all while they neglect the parts which they don't like or don't benefit from. If they don't benefit from it in some way, eh, I'll put it behind me. They just dismiss it. And typically, they're very smart, very smart, some of the smartest people in the world. They may even uh, be very knowledgeable in matters related to uh, religion and theology, but they don't actually believe it. It's just a show. It's like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And what did Jesus tell the Pharisees? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You're hypocrites. You're lawless. You're full of it. Our verse 18 goes on to describe some of their character traits here. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him. 
You associate with adulterers. They're sneaky. They're shady. They operate within whispers and in corners and, sh- and shadows. They keep shady company. You let your mouth loose in evil. You harass, your, excuse me, you harness your tongue for deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. They're slanders. They, they thrive on spreading lies and gossip and making false accusations. They're distorters. They're dividers. It's just who they are. They're liars and sociopaths, religious sociopaths. They're hypocrites. They run rampant in Israel. Uh, they ran rampant in Israel during the time of David and Asaph. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we see this, really from the top down, too. Jeremiah 23, Yahweh said, For both prophet and priest are polluted. Even in my house, meaning the temple, I have found their evil. These people have a history of of saying, oh yeah, we'll worship him, we'll obey Yahweh, we'll do what he says, and then immediately going off to serve other gods, prostituting themselves to the gods of the foreigners, the Baals, even offering sacrifices at the high places to Moloch and others, all while trying to convince people that they were righteous and they were pious. And again, it, it continued throughout Jesus' day, right? Remember when uh, the Pharisees, they brought Jesus to Pilate? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> John says, they, they then led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Oh, they were so religious. They were such fine, upstanding men of God, wouldn't dare defile themselves by entering the abode of a Gentile. I don't know I went English there, Lighter. I'm sorry about that. I think it's the old thespian. They wouldn't dare enter the abode of a Gentile, oh, while scheming to murder the very author of life himself. They were the epitome of hypocrisy pretending to be the champions of the law of God and the defender of the name of God and the nature of God. Oh, well, convincing some godless man to nail him to his cross, saying, we have no king but Caesar. So interesting, when we we read Isaiah 43, their own prophet, when Yahweh himself says, I am Yahweh, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. Now, we have no king but Caesar. And you know what? They're right. He is their king. He is their Lord. He reigns over them, but they are not his people. Truly, they honor him with their lips, but their hearts are what? That's right. Far from him. And it continues today in both Israel and the church, frankly, Same kind of hypocritical religious sociopaths in the church today. He will repay them one day for their falsehoods. He will judge them one day for their wicked deeds. It's just a fact. He says in verse 21, these things you have done and I have kept silent. He's so patient. He's so long-suffering. I've kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. But here comes the verdict and here comes the sentencing for the wicked. I will reprove you, <coughs> excuse me, and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, 
lest I tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. He's not like us. We, we have to get this type of thinking out of our heads here. We, he created us in his image. Uh, it's true. We are like him in some way, but he is not like us. Okay, this, this is backwards thinking. Some folks have it backwards, sir. Someone once said, God has created man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. <laughs> he created us in his image, it's true, but we are like him in some way, but he's not like us. That's what it says. They did it in David's day. They did it in Jesus' day. They do it today. They cast his word aside. They cast the revelation of himself aside. They make him into a God of their own liking. They only end up looking like fools in the process, and everybody knows it. God speaks from his holy mountain, Mount Zion, just like he did at Sinai, and his message is this. I am not like you. To the believer, to my people, don't bring your formalistic worship before me and think you're doing me some favor. I love you. I forgive you, of course, but do this instead. You'll enjoy my salvation to the fullest. To the unbeliever, keep my name and my statutes and my covenants out of your mouth. You know nothing of them. You're a liar and you're a hypocrite. I am nothing like you and you are nothing like me. And with heaven and earth as my witness, you will be condemned, exposed, ripped to pieces like a wild animal rips up his prey. Your sentence will be death forever and ever in the lake of fire. That's pretty fearful stuff. I'm just telling you what it says here. Don't, don't come after me. Don't shoot the messenger. Or do whatever. Whatever. You came into this place this morning, hopefully with the intention of hearing a word from God. And you have. Uh, but I want to ask you, did you really hear it? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you heard a word from the Lord, and it is what it is, a rebuke. Maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, you know, I learned from this. I, I certainly did. Uh, I don't always come in here bringing my best before the Lord. We, we sing the songs. We listen to the sermon. We preach the sermon. We pray. We partake in his table. But it's not always with the right intentions. Same for our private study and worship. We got a rebuke this morning. We got reprimanded. But we also got a reminder that no matter what happens, we belong to him. And now we rejoice together that the Lord had mercy on us and said, Remember, my child, your inadequacy, your inability, your weakness only better demonstrates my strength. Your sin was paid for at another mountain, Mount Calvary, right? And now, by my grace, I've given you a, the ability to understand what I truly desire, what it means to be in right fellowship with me, sincerity of heart. That's Psalm 50. That's what that says to the believer. For everyone else, I want you to look at what he says in verse 23. Yet another invitation from the long-suffering Lord of the heavens and the earth. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me. He who orders his way, I shall show the salvation of God. Franz Dillich said, uh, this is God's invitation to be on the way where he will grant them a rapturous vision of the full reality of divine salvation. 
Another commentator said this verse con- uh, conveys the idea that there is a life that is in line with the way of salvation. For this is the opposite of the disobedient life that will be torn to pieces. Let me just ask you this morning. We're going to close here. Which path are you on? Which way are your feet walking upon? Do you know of this salvation? Have you entered in through the narrow gate that is Christ, Christ who bids sinners just like you and just like me enter through the narrow gate? He's telling you, enter in, come in through the narrow gate, the gate... For the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. The gate is narrow, the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Are you one of the few? Are you one of the few this morning? This is the time to ask yourself and be honest with yourself in front of the one who knows your heart. You say, well, how do I know? Well, do you hear his voice this morning? Do you hear his voice this morning that says he will show you his salvation? He will give you you salvation. He will rescue you, transform your heart, deliver you from sin. Do you hear the voice of the good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name and leads them out and the sheep follow him because they know his voice? Do you know his voice? Do you hear him calling you this morning? Have you ordered your way by faith alone and will you follow him on the way by grace alone? What is the way? Thomas asked the same thing. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, the life, the door, the gate, the shepherd, and the lamb of God. Final sacrifice and perfect substitutionary atonement for sinners and nobody, nobody comes through the Father but through me. I bid you come to the Father this morning if you never have. Ask him to cleanse you of your sin, to wash you in the precious blood of his Son. Ask him to give you a new heart, a heart that is full of genuine and sincere love and reverence for him. He is both able and willing to do so. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's have Noel and the music team come up, and we'll close uh, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your divinely inspired word. We thank you, even the hard parts, Lord. We just uh, rejoice in the privilege of being able to come together as a body, as your people, and hear them, be instructed by them, and be changed by them. Thank you. Thank you for reminding us of the way, and thank you for the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.